Welcome to the Molding Health Show. Our goal is to leverage the wisdom and experience of healthcare practitioners to set you on a path of self-discovery and healing. These insights, coupled with a multidisciplinary approach to each area of interest, should provide an invaluable resource to everyone looking for a better approach to health. In this episode of the show, we speak to Sandeepa Soni about gut health and gastrointestinal diseases from a dietitian perspective. Sandeepa Soni, welcome to the show. So we're so glad to have you on board and talking about gut health and gastrointestinal diseases. Thanks so much for doing this. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm really pleased to be here today. Yeah, it's always our privilege. And, and um, you know, I say this on every every episode, but we learn so much from healthcare practitioners like yourself. And I'm really interested to go through this. And I'm not even going to try to introduce the topic, so I'll, I'll let you do that. But I do know that gut health probably in the last few years has become more mainstream. People are talking about it, you know, maybe not as much as you probably want them to. But uh, can you tell us what that means? What, what does gut health mean, you know, from sure. your perspective? Yeah, so you're right. There's been so many new studies and so much emerging evidence to show um, really interesting facts about gut health. So gut health, essentially what it means is um, your gut is anywhere from your mouth to your anus. It's your GI tract. So it includes um, the mouth, the esophagus, your stomach, your bowels. And it's really the health of all those areas. Um, And there's been loads of studies on it um, showing that good gut health is really important for everyone's general health. So about 70% of your immune system is in your gut. So it's really important to keep it nice and healthy. And we can do that through diet. So a lot of um, foods that you eat influences your gut health, but also other factors like how active you are, you know, how much time you spend outdoors, um, all those sort of things, stress, they all influence your gut health. Um, And there's been studies about you know the gut brain axis in terms of if your gut's really healthy then your mental health is better and vice versa so um yeah so it's that's kind of it in brief (laughs) okay that sounds amazing but how do you know when it's not in balance then because you mentioned some really interesting things there i would love to unpack that just now and we'll probably go down there but uh how do you know if it's not right then well you you do know because you get ill quite often so because it's your immune system you know linked to your immune system so if you're frequently unwell you know you haven't got good gut health or if you have symptoms such as like diarrhea or vomiting or stomach cramps that can show you poor gut health okay cool and i can't help but think that we have to go down the dietary kind of aspects because that's normally linked to food and how you how you prepare food and what food you eat and all of that stuff. Is that a, a big consideration when you're talking about gut health as well? Definitely. So yeah, the the importance of food on the gut has been shown to be really, really influential. So any foods that you eat, so good foods for your gut are things like your 30, there's studies around the 30 different plant foods a week. So good things are your fruits and your vegetables, and that could be like frozen, tinned, fresh, um, things like nuts and seeds. Um, so a variety of nuts and different seeds in your diet. 
um, things like herbs and spices, um, different varieties again, and then the whole grains. So whole grains are, are like your quinoa, your oats, your buckwheat, um, rice, all those sort of things. Having a variety and a diversity of all those plant foods every week is really important for good gut health and making sure that you're having, you know, not very processed or ultra, ultra processed foods as well. Mm. I think, uh, I mean, I think the rule of thumb is the more processed it is, the worse it is. So as close to source as you can, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So not going too um, processed with foods. And, you know, if you're having packaged foods and there's so many ingredients in there, that's showing that it is really processed. Mm. So trying to avoid foods like that. Okay. And then from from gut health to gastrointestinal diseases, or is there, I suppose, when it becomes worse, then it becomes the disease? Um, it can do. So gastrointestinal diseases, there's a whole host of diseases, you know, so you could be talking about things like poor gut health can lead to um, IBS, which is one of the diseases. So irritable bowel syndrome, which... Um, that condition can show up in symptoms such as bloating and wind and diarrhea and severe stomach cramps. And so if you don't eat well, you have poor other factors like stress or no movement, etc. That can all impact in causing sort of IBS symptoms. But you do get a range of um, GI diseases such as Crohn's, which uh, may not be influenced by gut health or like celiac disease, which is auto, you know, both of these are autoimmune conditions. Um, or you may get other conditions such as, you know, bowel cancers and things, which leads into from diseases and things. So, you know, it's, there are diseases that are not influenced by how you're eating. It's just autoimmune and yeah, de- unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned autoimmune because I mean I didn't you know I didn't pick that up um, you know in the brief as well or the outline, but that's actually a, a really that's something as well that's a lot more you know mainstream probably in the last five ten years or so you know people with autoimmune diseases, whereas I think yeah. in the, uh, you know I think twenty years ago not many people knew what that was. Um, no, but they were still around, so people still had diabetes and that's autoimmune. It's just. Mm-hmm everything's now got a term and you know there's all these um different terms that are discussed more I suppose with social media and things so people are coming more aware of things they don't fully understand things but they are more aware of them okay so so you're saying it was always around we just didn't know it was around Um, yeah 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 I mean things like yeah things like Crohn's disease and celiac disease have been around a long time but they are probably diagnosed better these days or because people are more aware there's more training um around them GPs are getting more educated as well about Mm. conditions so I suppose it's picked up better or earlier Mm. like I, I didn't know that I think it's a rheumatologist that specializes in autoimmune diseases and yeah so I mean, patients with like arthritis or lupus and things conditions like that which are autoimmune as well mm, okay like that only came into my vocabulary probably last year 
and <laughs> before that it was like not even known um so yeah interesting world i mean i think it's interesting that we live in a in a world where lots of these things are much more accessible you know you don't have to buy that one book you know that explains everything because someone thought that that's how it is it seems to be changing so often and and more information more awareness around the stuff yeah um, definitely do you it's, think it, it makes it worse um I think it can do. Um, I think there's pros and cons. I think it's good because people are educated more. They've got more knowledge on conditions. Um, but I think it can make it worse for the people who, um, you know, who look at a bit hypochondriac. So they start looking into things that they could be suffering from. So I don't think that's good because I've, I've met patients like that who feel like they've got things and, I don't think they have. So, yeah, I think there's pros and cons. Mm, yeah, I can kind of see that happening. <laughs> you, know, you search on Google and you check all of the symptoms like, okay, I got that, got that, got that. I'm pretty much self-diagnosed now. You know, you just yeah. give me the medication. Um, yeah. yeah, so you do meet people like that. Mm. So I can kind of see the diet part. You know, what, I, what I'm not seeing with gut health is maybe how the exercise works and how lifestyle works. Would you be able to clarify that for us? I mean, how, yeah, how I mean, I suppose as a dietitian, I'm more familiar with the diet stuff. So, but I am aware of other factors. So things that can also influence gut health is exercise. So movement, any activity in any form, it could be like, you know, dancing, cycling, gardening, they all have an influence on your gut. So a positive influence because it's, um, sort of helping your gut microbes um in the gut also things like sleeping very well so any sleep deprivation um can cause um you know the gut microbes to react badly um things like stress or being um anxious all the time can influence your gut microbes and your microbiome um things like that can all affect it negatively uh, and that's when you get the more harmful bacteria in your gut instead of the good bacteria. Mm. And uh, so, Sandeepa, is there a way that you can measure that? I mean, uh, I, I mean, so a few years ago, I started on this whole bulletproof diet aspects, and I know dietitians probably hate it, but you know, yeah. Dave, uh, Dave Asprey started talking about you know like that, and so, so gut health kind of came into my vocabulary around that stuff, but. I think it was mentioned, but I'd love to get your thoughts. Is there a way to measure how much of good biomes you have and how much of bad ones you have? There isn't really. I mean, there's so many, you know, you get these people online and I've had people who I've seen in the past um, for gut health and gut conditions that see these testing laboratories or these things where they send off samples or they're, their stools and things and actually I wouldn't you know I, I don't 
trust them um i don't think they are accurate because your gut microbiome is changing all the time you might have like an illness and it's impacted you might have a course of antibiotics and then it's impacted and you know you might change your diet you might be on holiday and have a totally different diet and that can impact on your gut microbes and it can change over weeks and months and i think taking a test at particular time isn't going to show you a lot because like a month later it might be totally different because it's a new season and you're having different foods and I really don't think those tests are actually worth investing in Hmm. okay thanks for saying that actually you saved me some money then yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not looking yeah. for these days yeah um, they can be expensive and it's not necessary mm, I think anything on that fringe aspect you know definitely um but so Having said that then, so how, how do you, from a clinician point of view, test or, or is it based more on from a feedback point of view from the patient? Yeah. To say, I'm so, actually not feeling well. Yeah, so we do things like symptom evaluation. So with my IBS patients, I get them to do a baseline assessment. So they do a baseline assessment of their bowel symptoms. So like we score it from like mild symptoms to like severe. So if they've got diarrhea or they've got like heartburn or stomach cramps, we do a baseline assessment before I give advice. And then I give sort of dietary advice. And then when I see them again, which is usually sort of a month or six weeks later, we do another, the same evaluation and score that. And very often you see those symptoms um, reduced, the scores are less, they feel better. So we do more of those sort of evaluations, um, which we find more reliable because it's how the patient's feeling. Mm, okay, that, that makes sense. And um, I think it's also, I mean, it's the patient's view on it as well. So they, they're getting to judge themselves in terms of how they're feeling and and then you're kind of working from there uh, with a plan. Yeah, because that's important. It's important to see how they're feeling about it and how they feel about changing their diet and how they feel from a symptoms point of view because we're trying to help them, essentially. So it's, it is about how they're feeling. Mm. Yeah, and you mentioned IBS. I mean, uh, I think irritable bowel sy syndrome. And uh, I think when, when I think of that, I always think stress. And I think, you know, people always on... on um, yeah, you know, when it's stressed out, it seems to be a common, you know, common way of, of dealing with it. Do you find that that's a, a big factor? I know stress is with everything. I mean, but is stress a huge factor with IBS? Yeah, I think so. It can be. I mean, before patients are diagnosed with IBS, we do have to rule out other conditions like celiac disease or Crohn's um, because, you know, those conditions all have sort of similar symptoms. So we have to rule out medical conditions first. But I do feel when patients are diagnosed with IBS, um, diet plays a part, but stress does too. And some of these people have a really sensitive gut. So when they are stressed or anxious, it can show up in their body as well with all the symptoms that they're getting. So it's a really important um factor to try and help patients with I saw someone yesterday actually who who has IBS and is very very anxious and we were discussing sort of techniques to try and help her so like 
she loves gardening she loves walking um you know I suggested other things such as yoga she wasn't too keen so it's trying to find things that suit each person to help relieve their stress um yeah okay um and and is I mean I, I suppose from a stress point of view I mean it's a it's a common common theme that you know most people say you should try not to get stressed out but I, I think with the li- with the world that we live in and with lives that we live in now especially post covid I mean it's it's pretty interesting you know asking someone not to be stressed out uh, but I li- I like the coping mechanisms that you that you probably uh, all proposed um is there anything else that you can think of like ha- on how to reduce stress I think meditation comes up a lot mindfulness yeah. Yeah. I think it's different for everyone, isn't it? I think mm. it really depends what things trigger your stress, maybe trying to avoid those things in the first place, um, or think about ways, like you say, coping strategies and how you relax. Everyone's so different in how they relax. So, you know, I know for me, it's going off to like a, a gym class where I do weights or read or going I love gardening doing things like that but for my husband it'd be totally different you know it'd be he loves his podcasts actually so (laughs) listening to a podcast so everyone's so different so I think it's finding something that works for you and just going with that Mm. I think most people would say it's work or traffic so if you can take out those two factors (laughs) in life it'll probably it'll probably be less stressed out um, yeah, unless you enjoy your work. Mm. I just think I I enjoy my work. Don't get me wrong. There are some NHS days where I'm like, oh, it's just too crazy. But if you enjoy your work and it doesn't feel like work, then I don't think that's stressful. Mm. Um, yeah, that's the that's the nirvana. That's the you know the ultimate case yeah. that you want to get to. Um, and I think that's a journey as well. I think for most people to realize and and I, I say that obviously tongue in cheek. But finding stuff or environments, you know, obviously that you can, you know, thrive in. Um, yeah. And is there a typical treatment plan? I think you you gave us a precursor to it just now in terms yeah. of, you know, the six, you know, after six weeks or is there something in particular you follow? Uh, if, if, you, if you find someone needing help with a GI disease or gut health? So there's different treatments, uh, treatment plans. So you can either, there's, there's the the medical treatment plan. So GI diseases, as I said, it kind of covers a range of diseases. So it really depends, you know, sometimes for Crohn's, you're looking at certain medications or sometimes it can be so severe they have surgery. Um, with celiac disease, the treatment is a lifelong gluten-free diet um, and trying to avoid contamination, but also optimizing things like their calcium intakes um, iron intakes things like that so that's a very common GI um, dis- disease as well um, and then for IBS in terms of treatment plans it will be sort of diet um, psychological um, strategies um, some people be- really benefit from hypnotherapy for their IBS um, but those would be the dietary sort of sides of things um, as well. So it's sort of thinking about the whole aspect, medical, psychological, dietary, and trying to do a co- combination treatment plans for, for all the various conditions. Mm. I'm also just thinking, though, I mean, like, you know, lots of these, when you say treatment plans as well, um, 
it it requires quite a lot of work on the, on behalf of the patients. Do you find that patients are quite diligent about that stuff? I mean, keeping to that plan? Yeah, I do. I find that if they have symptoms and they come to you for help and you give them sort of plans and strategies, more often than not, they do follow them because they really want to help themselves. Um, so, yeah, I've, I find a lot of the patients with like Crohn's or celiac disease or you know even IBS do do make changes some sometimes they don't but they just need a push um but it can be quite rare I find most of my patients do actually listen and follow through with advice okay that's good to know I I was just thinking from a you know like you get caught up in the day-to-day running of life and you know it's quite difficult to keep all of uh, Sandeepa's, you know, (laughs) (laughs) instructions in mind and that plan. But I I think if it's a change in lifestyle and it's a change in, you know, how you're approaching like diet and stuff like that, probably it's a, you know, it's a good thing. And then it doesn't become like another checklist item. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get the few odd patients that sometimes don't do all the, so they change most of their diet, but then there might be an element where they may not do, you know, the activity, like the exercise part of things. And they might, you know, fall down on that a bit, but they just need a little nudge because I I see patients through the, their journey. So I see them more than once. So it's kind of just checking in with them and pushing them a bit sometimes and yeah, encouraging them. Mm. <laughs> that's probably why they keep it (laughs) and 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 use the work um you mentioned gluten-free i i didn't think of that as a as a question but i think having you on as a dietitian is probably a good opportunity to ask the question there's a lot of talk around gluten-free at the moment again you know when i grew up i mean we never heard of those terms but in the last few years definitely it's gluten-free no soya you know less you know lactose all of those things yeah. Is there something about that? Yeah, th- there is. It is a hot topic. And I should, probably should say at this point in time, I've got celiac disease. Okay. Um, I have celiac disease. My dad does and my youngest son does. I've got two children. Um, so I'm very aware of the whole hot topic on gluten-free. I get asked about it a lot because I have to follow a gluten-free diet and sometimes I get questioned about it but I have got celiac disease um so yeah food intolerance in general you see a lot of people um think they are have problems with gluten or with wheat or with lactose and they cut it out of their diet and they f- they think they feel better or they don't feel better and actually a lot of my private patients come through in that way saying they've cut out this and that and they've still got symptoms um so I do see a lot of patients with these intolerances I think there is something around there those things so I think some people genuinely do have a lactose intolerance or a gluten intolerance what I do is if I get anybody like that I always make sure they get tested for celiac disease so putting gluten back into their diet because you have to have six weeks of some element of gluten in your diet to be diagnosed celiac um because getting diagnosed celiac will benefit them in terms of giving them prescriptions for products maybe 
or giving them opportunity to have a DEXA scan for checking their bones because celiac disease can impact on your bone health um, and making sure you get calcium prescriptions and things. So it's really important to get diagnosed with celiac disease and not follow gluten-free diet because you think, you know, you're gluten intolerant. Um, and then perhaps if you're not got celiac disease, but you feel like you really do have an issue, issue with gluten, is try and seek some help from a dietitian um, around that and making sure that your diet is still, you know, nutritionally complete and make sure you're getting all the right nutrients, even though you want to be gluten free because you think it's helpful or if you feel you've got a food intolerance um definitely seeking help from a dietitian to make sure your diet is complete in all the nutrients you need because some people might be cutting out things like lactose and then cutting out dairy and essentially they're losing a lot of calcium from their diet or good sources of protein and then that might link into other deficiencies um you know and you're sort of impacting on your health then um and that could mean further diseases down the line like osteoporosis so it's really important to make sure you seek help from a healthcare professional if you Mm. out foods yeah (laughs) well said uh i mean and i think that's the reason i was asking that question is because you know lots of it starts to become almost it's popular to do it and it might not be and i'm glad you mentioned the yoga thing as well because yogurt as well, there was a time where it started getting a really bad rap and everyone was like, no, it has to be low fat, or it has to be no yogurt. And I think you pointed that out quite nicely um, in terms of it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to just go gluten-free or that no milk at all or anything like that. Um, probiotics, I think that comes up a lot. <laughs> is that, um, yeah, so there's two schools of thought. One is like, you know, get as many probiotics as you want to. I've actually had someone that told, you know, and this was like a, you know, one of the specialists, you know, gastrointestinal specialists. And he said, you know, probiotics are not so good. So I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Obviously, it's not yeah. ever going to be the perfect answer. Just more your feeling on it. My feeling on it. I mean, there are, there is a place for them. There's a place place for probiotics and there's some really good situations where they come in quite helpful um but I do find it's one of the last things I would recommend um just because there are other things that I would favor over probiotics in certain conditions so they are useful for things like if you've had a course of antibiotics and the antibiotics have disturbed your gut microbes and when we're thinking about gut health you want more friendly, good bacteria in your gut rather than the harmful bacteria. So antibiotics will kill all, all of your bacteria. So having a probiotic after a course of antibiotics is actually really good for your gut and it will stimulate all the good bacteria again. Or probiotics, there's a small case of them helping in things like IBS um, and for things like ulcerative colitis. There are some studies to show that probiotics can be helpful. But a lot of people I find, um, you know, these days sort of latch on to probiotics because it's going to help them massively um, and all their faith goes into these probiotics in whatever form it might be. Um, And that's not always true. You know, you've got to look at all the other aspects, you, you know, going back to the 
sort of the plant foods for your gut health, the movement, exercise things, sleeping well, all that is really important for your health more. If you're not doing any of those things, but having probiotics and feel you're doing your bit, then that's sadly not going to be the case. Um, So, yeah. So there's a place for them. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know if it's the same in the UK, but um, in South Africa, it became almost a thing as in, you know, you had five strains of probiotics and then you had seven and then you had like 14. Uh, I'm making that up, but, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it became like almost like a competition within that segment, you know, and how many other, you know, like uh, how, how good the probiotic was. And, yeah. Um, yeah. So interesting. But uh, I like how you explain that as well in terms of, you know, um, just don't forget the other aspects, which are probably more important around that. Um, when I was doing the research for this, for this topic, the other one that came up, and I thought this was quite funny, but, uh, it's, you know, lots of people on Google searching for gut health smoothie. Have you come across right. that? I mean, like people asking for a, Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> like people asking for, you know, is there a smoothie to fix the gut health? Um, I don't know if it's more like, what do you put in a smoothie, you know, to, to yeah, yeah, you know, to have better gut health? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I've never had that question, but, you know, smoothies, there's a place for them too. Um, and there's lots of things you can put in there that's gut friendly, like oats and chai seeds and fruits and things. But um, just watching the load of like natural sugars and things, because that's another thing when you have a load of like fructose and natural sugars together, that can impact on the gut and cause symptoms as well. So it's trying to not overdo it as well. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so not all smoothies are, are you know, healthy. Are healthy, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So exactly. I, it drives me crazy because I get relatives or friends that say they're having this and that and want my opinion. Um, and it, but I feel really bad because I'm like, actually, that's not that healthy. And they're like, oh, I'm having this juice and that juice. And I'm like, oh, that's just a load of sugar. <laughs> yeah, so, mm. yeah. Yeah, we went through that phase once as well, and we were putting a lot of fruit in it. And I remember going to an endocrinologist, you know, and a, you know, just to get, you know, like check check your blood and stuff like that. And she was like, "You have the worst diet ever." And I'm like, oh, we, <laughs> "You know, we we're doing this really healthy stuff, and it's like fruit and veg." And she's like, "Yes, but there's too much of sugar there." And I thought that was like quite sobering. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Always speak to yeah, a dietitian. I feel, yeah, I feel that some people just Google stuff or they watch celebrities or they're on Instagram and they follow all these things that they think is healthy when actually they have no knowledge of what is in that food. Um, but yeah, it's a little bit frustrating, but I, ju- I try and share my knowledge as much as I can with family and friends um, because I don't want them to have something that they think is healthy and then actually it's it's not at all <laughs> <laughs> no definitely um i think it's always amazing to to speak to people like yourself you know and get a perspective on it and and some things we inherently know but we don't do anyway um but the one thing i, I am actually quite enjoying is uh the move from you know proper um you know like cow cow's milk to like oat-based milk and i find that's actually quite nice 
uh, it's been a, a pleasant change actually uh, because most of the you know most of the the soya based milk and stuff like that wasn't really didn't taste nice uh, but i find in the uk i mean the the two oat based ones that i've tried was really nice yeah no that's good i know there's so many milks available now and um, everyone wants to sort of change it for the you know thinking about the environment and having less animal products which is really really good mm. um, so yeah it's interesting to hear and in terms of like um, nutrition it's they all have calcium in them and some have different forms of protein in them as well so it, it is quite interesting to to hear about it oat milk but um when you are gluten-free you can't have oat milk so i've never tried oat milk um so yeah but i have tried some of the others so it's mm. yeah, it's, it's an, another new um area isn't it mm. the, the plant-based products yeah i mean I, I never thought it would get the same consistency as milk as we know it but you know it's actually interesting what humans can do hey, in terms of alternatives and things like that um yeah very very interesting I didn't ask you this question, but how did you actually start working with gut health or GI diseases? Was there a certain spark around that? Or there was. was it just... Okay. Yeah, I had, um, back when I was a junior dietitian, um, I was in Nottingham and I had a really good bunch of dietitians that I worked with. Um, so when you're a newly qualified dietitian, you do rotations. Most people do rotations within the hospital so what that means is every six months you can join different specialist teams and one of the teams that I really wanted to work in was the gastro what we call the gastro team and they work with conditions such as you know celiac disease and, and Crohn's and things um, so I had the opportunity to work with them uh, for six months and I really enjoyed it I loved the variety of conditions and the different dietary methods that we use with um, inpatients and outpatients. Um, and then I specialized in uh, the IV nutrition, uh, parental nutrition with them in Nottingham. And then when I moved to Brighton, um, I worked as a Macmillan dietitian for about 10 years. And just before COVID kicked off, in 2020 I moved to the gastro team in Brighton um, and that developed my interest again in all the gastro GI diseases gut health and I spent the last three years there um, just learning so much from um, all the gastroenterologists my gastro colleagues um, you know building up experience there so yeah that's kind of how I've got involved in it um, I've also, because I started my private practice two years ago, I did the low FODMAP diet course. So I could see patients with IBS who needed low FODMAP diet. Um, so, yeah, I've just kind of like wanted to do as much as I can in that field because I just really enjoy it. And I love all the different conditions, all the different dietary advice. I see patients um, in the hospital and outside the hospital. Um, and in the hospital, it's more about the IV nutrition, parental nutrition, or it's tube feeding, 
um, or it's nutrition support. And then with the private patients, it's more like the low FODMAP diet, gut health, you know, celiac disease. So I just like the mix. It's so varied. Mm, sounds very interesting, actually, which uh, and I can see the appeal. Um, you mentioned the low FODMAP diet. What yeah. is that? So the low FODMAP diet is a, a specialized diet for patients with IBS. So before patients go on to this sort of diet, they do all the first line stuff. So there's lots of first line dietary advice for patients with irritable bowel syndrome. So we look at things like avoiding caffeine and, you know, having enough fluid and eating regular meals. Once they've kind of had all that advice and still got symptoms, um, there's the option of having a low FODMAP diet. Essentially, there's three different phases of this diet. And the first phase is introducing a low FODMAP diet. FODMAPs are just carbohydrates, the types of carbohydrates that patients with IBS are really sensitive to and react to. So they have gut symptoms to them. Uh, And the first phase is around four to six weeks. And you just reduce the amount of high FODMAP foods in your diet. So it is eliminating lactose, uh, wheat, and uh, quite a lot of fruit and vegetables as well. Um, So it is a big change in diet, but that's four to six weeks. And then the middle phase, which is around six to 10 weeks, is the reintroduction phase. So patients are reintroducing some of these high FODMAP foods in a very specific way to see if that triggers IBS symptoms. Um, And then the third phase is when you've done all your sort of trying to reintroduce foods and you found what foods trigger your symptoms, it's trying to do a sustainable long-term diet that eliminates any trigger foods. So I've had patients who don't get on with lactose or don't get on with wheat or don't get on with things like onions. So it's trying to modify their diet long-term to avoid those foods, but make sure it's nutritionally balanced uh, and the right diet for them really um but yeah essentially low format diet is to try and help uh, identify triggers to their ibs eliminate them and then make sure that they are uh, following a good sustainable diet hmm. oh yeah very, very interesting um it's quite scientific it seems hey like in it terms is. of yeah. <laughs> And, and I think that's the one misnomer with, with dietitians is I think your course itself is like quite, you know, quite scientific as in, you yeah. know, like looking at it from different angles. That's not because um, I think when most people think of dietitian, they always think of, you know, just get a diet plan. But it's actually yeah, not a meal plan. Yeah, yeah a meal plan. <laughs> but it's no, under- there's so much to it. Like we do so much science in the background, like by biochemistry you know, pharmacological treatments like drugs. We look at in the hospital, we look at blood results all the time. Uh, we're looking at liver function tests. We're looking at usernese, urea and electrolytes. We're looking at iron levels. You know, there's so much medical um, aspects of being a dietitian that people don't know about. And we don't talk about it, I guess, mm, about yeah. the food and, you know, and what diet and how big your portions are and things like that. But actually, we are very medical. 
<laughs> yeah, I know. And and I think the uh, the the one dietitian we had on the on the show, and she, I mean, you know, she definitely helped me understand it. But but I think in her words as well, she said, I mean, the body is like the ultimate, you know, like experiment, like you know, body chemistry, the whole thing. And a dietitian actually helps you navigate that because you know the different food that you put in has a different effect on your body. Definitely. And I mean, yeah, that is amazing to think of it like that. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think a dietitian definitely helps with all of those aspects and not just, you know, <laughs> and what I'm saying with that is that it's not just like you just pick on a meal planner, you know, like these are, these kind of make sense together from a nutrition point of view. It's also understanding how it affects your body, which I think is a key part. So, yeah. And we're also, we, we, the advice we give is always based on scientific studies that have been proven to work. So we don't give advice just, you know, on anything, it has to be proven to work for somebody. Um, so like the low FODMAP diet, there's been loads of studies about that. And actually it's in the the NICE, the BSG NICE guidance for IBS. So there are guidelines on using that and it's been shown to be really effective for patients with IBS after the first line dietary advice. So that's mm. why we recommend it. Yeah, and I think that's probably the biggest plug for healthcare practitioners is is the fact that it's always research based. It's not the latest, you know, fashion in yeah, it's not food. Fad. Yeah, it's definitely not a fad, and it's definitely not a a gut feel based on you know what your family have done or something like that. It's it's scientific based, which I think is re- or, or and research based, you know, backed by research, yeah. which I think is amazing. Um, I think the one thing good about dietitians as well is they they normally don't tell you actually don't do that ever. Always try to find some compromise. You know, I know you like doing that, but maybe smaller portions or something like that. Um, yeah. yeah, I remember you have when... to work with people, don't you? And mm. I just think nowhere, no one gets anywhere by saying no. Actually, don't do that. You can't do that. You know, I'm a parent as well, and it does definitely doesn't work with kids. <laughs> um, so you have to compromise, and you have to like build up people um and make sure they do things in small quantities and build up different ways of eating and eating is such a habit like you have habits around food you know times of day that you eat foods that you eat foods that you buy you have you know people have recurrent shopping lists they kind of buy the similar things each week and so it's really difficult to break habits but you can mold habits and form new habits um, but not totally change everything in one go. Mm. It's, it's not, yeah, it, it's very difficult to do. Mm, agreed. Um, on the on the treatment aspects, I mean, do you work with, I mean, like, are there any other members of like a multidisciplinary team that you would normally work under, uh, work with, especially yeah. on gut health or GI diseases? Yeah, definitely. So, in the hospital for GI diseases, I work with gastroenterologists, which are doctors specialised in, in gastro uh, conditions like Crohn's and IBD and IBS. And then um, I also work with, to do the parental IV nutrition, I work with pharmacists as well. So you get specialist pharmacists um, with the gastroenterologist and we do ward rounds um, and then thinking about the MDT as a bigger picture, we work with the nurses, um, surgical doctors as well. Um, in the private practice, I've actually just joined a new 
company called the Gut Health Clinic um, in London. Um, and again, they work, um, we work with uh, One Belt Welbeck, which is a private hospital in central London. Um, and they have gastroenterologists, they have IBD um, nurses, they have pharmacists. So we all work together. And there's a team of dietitians that I'm with, with the Gut Health Clinic as well. Okay, that sounds amazing. I mean, uh, I suppose a gastroenterologist, I would have thought, but I didn't think of the other ones. Um, and I didn't actually know about the pharmacists being in the hospital setting as well, which is quite interesting. Um, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't do my job without our pharmacist. She's amazing. Oh wow! Um, yeah, she's really good. So you know, we see patients with low levels of like phosphate or magnesium, and we have to. The pharmacist will prescribe vitamins and things for patients with very low vitamin levels um and we also look at things like iron statuses uh, fluid uh, making sure someone's got enough fluid on board so it's prescribing like iv fluids and things so there's so much to consider for when patients are really acutely unwell in the hospital so mm. you need an MDT for that. You can't do it all yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't serve the patient well. Uh, but right. yeah, it's actually amazing yeah, as a patient, you know, being in that setting and seeing this team of like specialists around you, you know, yeah. um, looking looking after you. So, yeah. I mean, obviously yeah. you don't want to be in that setting, but I mean, the fact that you are and you have these amazing people, you know, looking after you is pretty cool. Yeah, I think they're so unwell, though. I don't think they always see that. Um, but they do. They, they Some of them are quite thankful, but some of them are so unwell that they just, you know, take each day as it comes. Mm, no, no, I can see that. Um, and in terms of, of books, resources, or anything else that you found quite interesting, I know you're probably going to, you know, um, mention some of the research articles or you know, just go read on that stuff. But is there anything that you found, you know, to help people understand gut health and GI diseases a bit better? Yeah, I, so the Gut Health Clinic that I've just joined in London is sort of led by the Gut Health Doctor called um, Dr. Megan Rossi. And she's got some really good books out. Um, actually, I've got one of them next to me. It's called Eat Yourself Healthy. Um, I'll just show you that there. Eat yourself healthy, and it's the gut health doctor Megan Rossi, um, and that's a really good book I found for like IBS and bowel, you know, gut health and bowel disorders and things. Um, and she's um, got a couple of um, podcasts as well on the Happy Pair podcast. She's got a talk about sort of gut health. So those are the things that I found the most useful. Um, and she has a website as well where you can get a free newsletter and there's lots of articles on there. So I'd say, you know, if you were somebody who wanted to learn more about gut health, it is definitely looking on the website, joining up to the newsletter, listening to the podcast and, and seeing the book. And that's easy to understand. Um, and, you know, there's lots of studies, but they're a bit more scientific. Um around gut health and the low FODMAP diets and things like that. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think those are always useful to do. Um, but again, you know, it depends on your propensity, you know, to to consume academic or research papers, because those are not the easiest, I think, to read in most cases. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
So any courses or tools, and I specifically ask this because most practitioners I find over the years seem to point someone to an, <laughs> to an application on an app store or something like that. Is there something that you do for your patients, um, you know, saying, please keep a diary of this or whatever that is? Do you find any other tools that you normally point them to? Um, for do you mean for gut health? Or? Yeah, yeah, just from a patient care point of view. Not really. I kind of so I have my own sort of sheets that I give out on sort of gut health or bloating, and to be fair, it's quite individual. So there's not a generic gut health advice apart from your thirty different plant foods a week. Um. It's tailored to because I see everyone with problems um, and all their problems are very different. You know, one person might have bloating and wind. So it's very specific in the advice I give them. Um, But the the most generic for anybody would be the 30 different plant foods a week. There's not an app that I know of or, you know, or anything like that. It's it's more sort of tailored individually. Okay, And is that a fairly known thing? if I go onto Google and search 30 plant food types, that's it. Um, I'm not sure, actually. I've never tried it <laughs> <at> Google. <laughs> it might be. It might okay. be. But it is quite well known. There's new studies on it. There's also a chap um, in the media called Tim Spector. I don't know if you've heard of him. Mm-mm. He talks a lot about the gut health and the Zoe study and the 30 different plant foods a week. And he's a doctor um, as well. And he's got a lot of um information out there as well on on gut health and things okay we'll try to find that and add them to the resources uh if you wanted to send that to us we'll add it to your resource page as well um, okay, just great. so that people have it um the one that didn't ask you and we didn't have it in outline as well but are there any ethical considerations around working with clients with gut health or gi diseases i mean your normal ones are obviously obvious you know common which is you know confidentiality and stuff like that but do you find there's any other ethics related stuff that comes up um not really no I suppose it is more the confidentiality the only other ethical ones you know that might come up is um I've had a patient with um gut problems who um has got undergone like gender reassignment so those sort of considerations because it can change like um your gut microbes and things um but yeah apart from that i haven't really come across any other um ethical considerations okay that's good i mean i would have never thought that i mean we did do an episode on gender identity um but yeah that's an interesting one as well. <laughs> Another one to add to my to my knowledge going forward. But I'll, um, okay, that sounds amazing. Uh, we do have to start wrapping up soon. This was an absolutely fascinating discussion. But um, Sandeepa, anything that you thought? You know, obviously, I try to, and we try to, you know, understand the topic as best as we can. But anything that you thought I should have asked you that I didn't? Oh, the only other thing I would. Um, say around the whole gut health thing is um, I, I can't remember if I've said but um, about fiber because fiber is a really important nutrient um, for the gut as well so you know every adult should be aiming for 30 grams of fiber a day 
Um, and fiber is really important for bowel health, um, to keep bowels regular. It's sort of the undigested part of plant foods. Um, it's been present in lots of carbohydrates. So that that's another really important for good get gut health. And you can find it in whole grains, in brown pasta, brown rice, fruit and vegetables, nuts and seeds. Um, that's really important. And having enough fluids is really important. Lots of water. Um, doesn't have to be fancy water. It can just be tap water. So, yeah, I just wanted to, um, yeah, remind people about those sort of elements. That's really important for gut health as well. Hmm. I just looked at the outline now and I, I did forget one as well. In terms of a loved one supporting someone with, mm -hmm. you know, gut health issues or GI diseases, is there anything that they, they should be doing or we should be doing better, um, you know, from your patient experience perspective? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's talking to them about their gut health. So when somebody has poor gut health or has a GI condition, it's talking to them about their condition, um, talking to them about any triggers they have. Um, yeah, trying to help them with their triggers um, and supporting them in terms of maybe meal planning together, cooking meals together, sharing recipes, um, trying to eat the same sort of foods and be supportive. Um, for example, I've got celiac disease. My youngest son has, and my husband is a legend. He's a really good cook. He'll make gluten-free things. If we go out to eat, he's always worried about um, if we get the right food, so we're always checking where we go out to eat before we go out to eat. It's having somebody, you know, that is supportive in that way um, around food and just making sure if you're trying to, you know, work together to have good gut health, trying to limit alcohol intakes, any processed foods um, and making sure you're having lots of fiber. Also, mindful eating. I didn't haven't mentioned this, but it's so important to eat food properly, chew your food to aid digestion, because that's really important for gut health. Um, so, you know, when you're eating together, make sure there's no distractions, no TV, no phones, having nice family meals together um, or in a couple and making sure you're eating well together to support people with gut health. Um, yeah. And, you know, in terms of um, making sure that you do movement together. We like to go on family bike rides together and family walks. So doing things that is really positive for gut health. And if people have conditions, making sure that they're, you know, accessing the medical treatments, that they're taking the medications on time, all those sorts of things really is important. And a good sleep routine, good sleep routines, making sure that you have a regular routine for bed and you're sleeping well is really important as well. Mm. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I mean, I think all of those things. You mentioned alcohol and I don't think we covered it in the episode. Is there like a do <laughs> is there like a do and don't you know like list around alcohol? I mean, um does it affect your gut health? It um, can be. Okay. So if you're drinking excessively or you're drinking every day, it's not really good for gut health. So limiting, um, you know, alcohol to maybe five days a week, 
we try to recommend to have a couple of days without alcohol for your liver to sort of detoxify and things and making sure that you're not overdoing it on your units um, per week as well. So just trying to stay within the units recommended. Mm. I don't think I've asked this question, but on the same, you know, on the same, tra- uh, you know, train of thought is, so there's, I mean, there's schools of thought around like having a glass of wine with every meal. I mean, there's certain mm-hmm. cultures that do it as well. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. From a, from a pure, from your perspective, I mean, is that a good thing? Not a good thing? Um, so I think the recommendations is like a hundred mils of wine a day is okay, but trying to make sure that um, it's not a regular, it's not, yeah, I, I just think maybe having a couple of days for your liver to detoxify away from alcohol. Because alcohol is a gut irritant. It's a bit like caffeine. We haven't talked about caffeine, but that's mm. another gut irritant. So it can irritate the gut. So it's, essentially, it's not very good for your gut. So just trying to limit it. But I, I know where, what you're talking about. Some cultures do believe in a glass of wine a day. Mm. I don't really think that's a good thing. Okay, cool. Okay, yeah. a week, wine, maybe five days a week is fine, but not over, yeah, not overdoing it on that. Mm-hmm. So something about the cholesterol and you know, like actually reducing the risk, you know, and stuff like that. But again, with, like with everything we said, I mean, there's studies to prove one way or the other, and and sometimes it does seem to be a fad and and all of that stuff. But uh, yeah. I thought it's interesting. Um, I thought it's interesting what you said about caffeine as well. So it's not just alcohol. It's not alcohol bashing, uh, but <laughs> very, very cool conversation. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for doing this. Um, thanks for your time. It was an absolute honor to have you on the show. Thank you. It's been really lovely to share my um, my knowledge and my experience. Thank you very much for inviting me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. As always, stay tuned and we'll speak to you in the next episode.